my intention is not to engage with anybody who I have to debate with. Yes. Like if there's anybody that I have to validate my humanity or anybody else's humanity with, I'm not interested in talking to them. Yeah. But if there are people who maybe have a slightly different view, but are open to the idea that faith is a vessel for justice and love, then we can have a conversation. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Dig News Streams podcast. I'm your host, Dave Capozzi. This week, I welcome my new friend, Damali Robertson. Damali is a DEI practitioner, an emerging filmmaker, and a student of life. Her commitment to justice, particularly using spirituality and faith as a vehicle to connect and promote it, is seriously inspiring. I'm looking forward to many more deep and moving conversations with her. If you want to keep up with the podcast, subscribe to whatever platform you're using to listen right now. You can find a consistent conversation happening on TikTok if you search for my name, Dave Capozzi, and on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Dig New Streams Podcast. Without further ado, my conversation with Damali Robertson. It sounds like you're trying to engage people of faith on a level that people who are not of faith could get down with. Oh, yeah. So the thing that's interesting about my church community, uh, and we call it a spiritual center, because like the word church even has like that connotation. Yes. Of a little bit of harm, weaponization, depending on where you're coming from. Right. And I've been someone who questioned the church model for a long time. Yeah. So I found this community through my own investigations of what else is there for people who just want to believe in something higher, yeah. who just want to feel connected to the universe, who, yeah. who really don't have an agenda around who's right, who's wrong, who's going to be judged, who's going to hell, who's like, you know, this whole thing, but just want a space to be in community and to celebrate our connection to Mother Earth, the four directions, the elements, the universe, God, if you choose that term. Yeah. And that is exactly what I found in this particular space. And there are other spaces like the space I occupy at Heart and Soul Center of Light, which is the name of it. But it, it just was a quest for me that I needed a space like that or no space at all. And so I do understand people who decide no space. I'll just do what I do um, as an individual. So I get it. That sounds amazing. It sounds like that kind of community also, based on what I, I've heard from you, is also focused on doing justice a, as a sort of core part of it. It Does it feel like this kind of community is a holistic, about the human experience connecting with something bigger? Uh, in a way that wasn't true for your church experience? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Coming from church experiences, I've gone to church pretty much my entire life. And I can say that the churches I've been to, uh, I grew up in Anglican churches primarily, uh, went to Catholic school for a couple of years, um, have, have been exposed to churches. 
uh, a lot of them are still service organizations, you know, feeding the poor, having lots of programs. So I really want to lift up a lot of churches doing a lot of things. And I also found that there are a lot of churches that did not want to get into the social justice space, meaning being vocal about the things that are wrong with our society. So they want to give food, <laughs> but they don't really want to critique necessarily the systems that uh, that put us there. And right. so what I found in my particular center is a spiritual leader, a minister who's willing to talk about hmm. the social justice issues, um, willing to put it out there, Um, And also a community that is trying to find its way around what are the activist things, organizing types, things that we can do. We have one thing called Imagining Justice, which is Mm. uh, a weekly gathering of folks just asking questions about what, how can we create this world that is more just, Mm. more loving, more just. It's an awesome space. And it's kind of like an imagine, like what it lends to the name. It's kind of like an Afrofuturist. Kind of like, what could we create if if there weren't the parameters we have in place? So it isn't necessarily the space where like all the activists can like dig in. And we're trying to figure that piece out. Like, what would it look like to organize with other faith communities to be more, be straight up activists? So that's like a, you know, work in progress. Yeah, that's a (laughs) part of your community. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that's what people are longing for from my own experience that we come from these high control situations, as you referenced earlier, that are about who's in and who's out. Mm -hmm. And these sort of invitational kinds of faith communities, who doesn't want to be a part of something like that? (laughs) The question, the question is, I love that you've got pedagogy, the the oppressed back there. That's a very influential book for me. Oh, just a few of my books. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And those these ideas that have become more at the forefront of a lot of people's minds and the conversations we're having as a society, and they're even reaching you know people like myself who have not had our backs against the wall mm. in society. That is a unique thing that I find really interesting. And you are using faith as sort of a way to unite people around pursuits of justice. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? You're, you've got your big day tomorrow that once this airs, we'll be over and you'll be a lot less stressed, but yeah. Yeah. You know what? The reason that I thought I would reach out to you and I uh, first saw you on TikTok was because you were doing what you just said. Like you're not someone whose back is against the wall necessarily but you want to talk about it. You want to lift it up. And I've appreciated the fact that you've also wanted to be very honest about it. I think there are a lot of people tiptoeing around it. So I think there are a lot of what I refer to because of Resmo Menekin's work, white-bodied people. So I use white-bodied, black-bodied. I try to like, because it's a social construct, it was created to divide us. So I use those terms very, you know, intentionally. But like what I appreciated is that you are telling it in a way that I really thought, oh, this is this is good. And there's some other folks doing that now where I think most white bodied people are sitting back still just allowing for the injustices and that to continue. Yeah. And so the thing is, like from a faith based perspective, my my premise is really leaning on 
folks like Dr. James Cohn, mm. uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Howard Thurman. Um, there are amazing women like Fannie Lou Hamer and Sojourner Truth and so many others in modern day to Emily Towns is a name that comes up yeah. who are saying like communities of faith have a responsibility. Like yes. this is not even like a nice to have. This is a necessity that people who believe in faith, which is grounded in love <laughs> um, for humanity have yeah. a responsibility to speak out against racism is one thing, but I've like said, and I use racism, colorism, oppression as the lens I come through because as a black bodied person, I've felt racism very deeply as someone who is a lighter, hued black bodied person. I actually benefit from the privilege of colorism. Mm. So mm. I don't want to just make it one thing. And then oppression like the what's happening with the LGBTQIA plus communities, trans communities as one example, is like, I can't stand, I can't have had all what's happened with racism happen and then not speak up about what's happening against mm. the LGBTQIA. So it's a, like a, a all in. Beautiful. As far as I'm concerned, yes. what faith communities need to be speaking up against yes. and about or for. Yes. And one of the situations that the denomination, the evangelical denomination I used to be part of, did a really fantastic job of pinning mar uh, marginalized groups against each other mm -hmm. for for a seat at the table. And ultimately, you know, having then that that creates this war between people who are all fighting against this sort of white supremacy culture. And this, they're all people of faith using pretty much all the same kinds of documents, right? So much of the documents that we, that uh, Muslims and Jewish folks and Christians are using are saying the same thing exactly. overwhelmingly. And so there is this touch point that you're able to connect with people of faith across all sorts of traditions. Have you mainly dealt with Christians in your work? You know, it was interesting. I went, I went out and filmed a series of conversations this summer in the South. And um, I wasn't sure exactly who I was going to get to talk to because it was kind of an emergent project. And I spoke to one person who is Muslim, who leads an effort in Jackson, Mississippi, the International Museum of Muslim Cultures, who is also connected to an interfaith mm. um, like coalition. And as part of the museum, there's a Jewish and Christian component. And so what she reminded me of, her name is Okolo Rashid, and I shout her out now, but what she reminded me of is that this is not a Christian project. Mm. That the work that I'm doing um, is interfaith. And also, and I want to say this, it it's, goes beyond the Abrahamic religions for me because of the African spirituality that um, gets uh, demonized really by uh, often like, especially those Abrahamic communities. Um, and so for me, it's like a whole swath of faith and spirituality. And, you know, there's, there's so many seats at the table in this yeah. work for me. There's nothing off limits, meaning, you know, indigenous practices, 
You know, it's all welcome if we're talking about love and connection and wholeness. Mm. And so, yeah, it's definitely, you know, what's interesting is I want to address the roots of Christian supremacy, though. And so I have been very kind of laser focused on interrupting that. But, you know, this is a project that is really, I think, expansive. Mm. That's beautiful. I, the people that you've engaged with that are within the Christian tradition, are they open to a conversation about Christian supremacy? Yeah. That's yeah. Beautiful. So yeah. The thing that's interesting, and I thought to myself after, is that I really do want to see if I can talk to more people who, um, they have to be open though. So yeah. the thing is, is I don't, my intention is not to engage with anybody who I have to debate with. Yes. Like if there's anybody that I have to validate my humanity or anybody else's humanity with, I'm not interested in talking to them. Yeah. But if there are people who maybe have a slightly different view, but are open to the idea that faith is a vessel for justice and love, then we can have a conversation. And so, yeah, the the people I've spoken to all understand Christian supremacy. Mm. Um, at different levels. And the people that I hope to speak to uh, going forward, as I kind of really rounded out, would also have to have some kind of thought about the impact of Christian supremacy and be open to talking about it. Yeah. When you are engaging with folks, I imagine that their faith isn't simply we meet on a Sunday and we have a community that does this kind of work. They're probably fairly active in their communities. What are some of the more inspiring things that you've seen, like in Jackson, Mississippi, of groups coming together around faith or, or as faith is a driver for justice and love that uh, have inspired you along the way? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is I went to Jackson, Mississippi. I went to Montgomery and Birmingham, Alabama. I went to Atlanta, Georgia. I went to Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, and Raleigh-Durham. And Mm. so in that trap, that whole journey, what inspired me was that there were so many people who were actually engaged in their faith walk in ways that were evident in the community. So Mm. in Jackson, uh, Sister Okolo was working on Beloved Community. Mm. Um, And that was like a huge emphasis of her interfaith work, her work as a Muslim, but also the interfaith work. And then in each city and each space that I went to, I came across people who were either social justice folks like um, Casey Benning in Atlanta, Georgia, who works with youth Mm. who are at risk gender. And that those terms are so kind of come from my nonprofit days, but youth have high potential in systems. Mm that uh, don't see their potential. I'll put it, I'll rephrase, right? And so she's a minister, but she's decided not to take her message to the pulpit, but to take her message into the world. And so there are so many other people like that who are either ministers in the pulpit or, and in, um, in North Carolina, I stopped in Greensboro as well to talk to a couple who um, are uh, LGBTQIA and Black, a married couple, mm. uh, Reverend Dr. Katrina and Reverend Tana, and they um, both work in interfaith communities. And um, one of them works in the open and affirming um, 
like work with churches. Yeah. And so it's like there was this whole huge swath of activists, mm. organizers, people who were saying no. Like mm. this, this like what's been created so far isn't gonna work for us. And so we're about doing something. So I, I was inspired. I was really inspired. Yeah. And with your work out in California, do you feel like that there's some resonance that it translates? I imagine the needs and the challenges and all that are very different from Jackson, Mississippi to San Francisco, Oakland. Um, yeah. But what's resonant? <laughs> you know, I was just going to say it's different, but it's not right. Yeah. So, and so what I found and that I found interesting and people named was that we focus on the South as this place where racism is so rampant, right? And yeah. we talked about the fact that, yes, it is, yes. Yeah. So let's yeah. not act like that's not true. Yes. Many things can be true. And so right here in California, <laughs> we come up against the racist structures as well. So yes. there's um, police brutality is very alive in our communities in Oakland and San Francisco, right? And then we have things like... Um, in different places in the state, uh, Temecula Valley, Chino Valley, where people are fighting against books, right? The same mm. bands that are happening in other states are happening right here in California. Wow. And then people named the fact that, for example, in New York City, there's such a huge um, history of racism, Yeah. right? So in the East Coast itself, West Coast, I think from coast to coast, <laughs> But it's different, of course. Yeah. But like what I learned and really took in was like, oh, it's different, but it's not. Mm. It's know? different, but it's it's the same. We talk, I talked about this with someone recently. It's the same disease, just different expressions of that disease, right? There you go. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. So what it takes to combat that disease where you are compared to what it takes in Jackson might be different, but you're going at sort of the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. So with all of these exciting people that you got to interact with and they got to interact with you also, um, what is it that you're hoping to build towards? What is this? Like you're getting a degree. This is a big deal. What are you building towards? What are you working on? Yeah, the truth is I'm working on creating a world that is different than the one that I inherited. And, hmm. um, I think about this a lot. Like when I was in high school in California, I went to high school in California, in Southern California. I remember being called the N-word um, by two white men when I was crossing the street to walk home. Um, later, when I went to college, I went to undergrad in Southern California. I was told by white students that, and me and other black students, it wasn't just me, uh, that I was only there because of affirmative action and I really didn't warrant or deserve my place there. Wow. And those things stick with you. Like those things are still so present with, with me. Mm. And um, what when I had children and they went to school in California, Northern California, the Bay Area, uh, they had similar instances of uh, racial aggressions, uh, racism. And I had to explain to them why so many young Black people were being killed. So I can remember sitting down, talking to them, 
about every one of these instances from Oscar Grant to Trevon Martin to Tamir Rice, sitting down, Sandra Bland, and on and on and on, um, you know, explaining why this is. And, you know, as they got older, uh, they got more angry about this reality too. Yeah. So as they're younger, it's a more like a fear. Yeah. But I think as they got older, it was just, it became more anger about why are we still in this situation, right? And I think that is the thing that I think about is, and like I said, my son, he went to college in Southern California, had instances of re- overt racism there. And so my mission is like, how can we interrupt it in a way that my children's children can have different conversations. Mm. You know, what is that like to say, you know what? I know we've been doing this for generations. So the other thing is I'm aware that it's not like I can do this on my own. So it's like my project is like one drop in an ocean of projects. My project is like one little sliver of creativity and inspired action that I hope is like re- like the kind of ripple, you know, each of us doing something yes. will create this world. So I want to just put off anybody who thinks that I think I'm some savior or something that's mm. going to rescue any. No, it's just my own inspired action coupled with your inspired action coupled with somebody else's is the hope that I have for like what we could potentially do if we're all doing something. Mm. I love that. And I I think that the more people who connect around their inspired actions, those people aren't pointing the finger and be like, oh, what do you think? What are you up to over there? Like you taking my shine? No, like, you know, no one's interested in that. This is this is the work of just understanding our connectedness to each other. I love that you asked the question, why are we still here? Like, Why are we still in this situation? What's been done that has moved the needle? What's been done that has appeared to be helpful, but has maybe not been as helpful as, as we might have thought. And that requires a deep amount of reflection in community around these conversations. One of the things that I get concerned about, especially for um, as white-bodied individuals that leave the evangelical or the Mormon or Jehovah's Witnesses movements, is that we leave them for all of the reasons that are right. Mm-hmm. Then we're longing for the things you talk about, and but then we end up on our own, devoid of community. And mm-hmm. I think my hope is that the kind of thing you're talking about ripples into places where white-bodied individuals can find these kinds of expressions of hope in their own contexts. And that I don't know what that that looks like, um, but we need to think about that question: Why are we still here? What do we need to do next? Or now, what do we need to do now? <laughs> you know, and I imagine you're a hearts and minds person and a law person, like they got to go tandem. In tandem. Right. And, you know, it's interesting. I recently participated in like a day and a half uh, workshop with this amazing organization called the, P- the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, hmm. which talks about the structures and the importance of understanding. Because I used to be a hearts and minds only person. Yeah. I used to be like, well, if I change hearts and minds, you know, and they were like, listen, we got to change structures. <laughs> Ron Chisholm <laughs> and his folks were like, look, okay, I feel you. And here's the power analysis. Here's the things, right? And, I, and I've come, I've come along to the fact that we have to change structures. The other thing 
that I, I want to say here and talk about apathy, yeah. you know, white, like comfort that says like, let's not shake the thing because we're comfortable. Yes. And I think that's baked into the structures because someone pointed out to me the other day that when South Africa had its reckoning um, where apartheid crumbled to the degree it could and President Mandela became president, they changed the constitution. Yes. Because that was an imperative to move forward. Absolutely. The United States is very wedded to its constitution and its yes. founding fathers in a way that says, I don't know what we're doing structurally. I don't know if we'll ever, I mean, my hope is we'll get there. Yeah. But I say all of that to say is that I think it would take white people saying we need to change the constitution. I think it would take white people saying this comfort that I've enjoyed for all these generations, it is at the expense of other human beings. Yes. And I want to change it. And yep. I'm, I get a little concerned about that because I'm not sure how you do that. You get, you, cons get you get concerned that there's too much apathy from white bodied folks. Yeah. And I'm like, how do we motivate white bodied folks to understand that that is actually what is really needed? Yeah. And that's the question I ask myself. Uh, I know and understand the apathy deeply and you know, it, it's in me. <laughs> it's, it's part of the, it's part of the way that we get raised here is to not, is to do your own thing and to fight for yourself. But I agree. I mean, as a civics teacher, I go through the way this country functions. I go through the constitution. I talk, talk to my students about this kind of stuff. We, we are in desperate need of a new constitution. There's no question. There is maybe a concern from white-bodied individuals who are afraid of the changing demographics in this country. Okay, that's one swath. They're not apathetic. They are fighting against that. Right. Yeah. Those are those are not the people that we're trying to pull. There are the people that, you know, we've heard a million times, Martin Luther King called them the white moderate, that agree. <laughs> They're here. They could be like saying yes to this whole conversation. And then when it comes time for action, we'll, we'll run for the hills, we'll, whatever it takes to get away from that. And I don't know what it looks like to create a sense of urgency around that. And that is a big question. Mm -hmm. um, I, I referenced Dr. King throughout my project. I asked mm -hmm. lots of people questions about his letter from a Birmingham his letter from a Birmingham jail, because yeah. I remember reading it a few years ago again and thinking, well, he wrote this yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew what was happening. So he, this is a modern, <laughs> this is oh, like yeah. a letter that like today you rolled it out and it has the same meaning in a slightly different context. And I thought, wow, what a visionary he was not knowing. I think he wrote it in earnest in that moment, but like the timelessness of that and the yes. white moment is my biggest concern. And yes. I mean, for example, in my daily work, there's a lot of great people who mean well, yeah. who, like you said, when uh, it comes time to do something active, to speak up against this thing, to say no to this thing, just will not. Because I think it's like two things to me. I think it's like, challenging that you know like that fear of if i rock the boat what happens to my job what happens to my yes. thing but on the other side of that will i still belong to whiteness Oof. if i rock this boat 
And I think that is one of the things that people stay stuck because they want to still belong to whiteness. I'm letting that one sit for a second. <laughs> you know, part of it is that, I mean, a big, I would say that that's the, the crux of it. And one of the things that I started to notice when I was getting involved in interfaith community organizing was that the white bodied folks that would be at the table, they would often say, you know, this senator, this cop is my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so if I go into this space and I speak up, what does that mean for my safety, for my community? It, it is very disruptive for the oppressor class, right, to engage in dismantling the system. Very disruptive and requires a certain um, willingness to not know where your community is. That is extremely difficult. And you know, what's interesting to me is that I think maybe as people who have had experience with marginalization, we know very well what that is. So I think, you know, we're the lone voice in this at the school board meeting. We're the other in all these scenarios. And so it doesn't have the same threat to us, right? As Mm. I think it has to that thing. And Isabel Wilkerson starts her book cast with this example of someone, one person who stood against the Third Reich um, in Hitler's time. Yeah. And she names him, I don't remember his name, but she gives this whole story of this one person standing against the tide and how much we need those people now. Yeah. And I just like urge my white body neighbors to think about, you know, what it means when you stand against what is unjust because you know it it may compromise your sense of belonging but for the long game what will it do for your humanity your shared humanity and we don't talk enough i don't think about the harm that is done to white people i i personally think that there's not enough conversation about the harm this level of hatred um vitriol but like this decision that your freedom must come at the expense of other people what that does to you yes you know as white-bodied folks and i think that that should also be more of a conversation and 100%. something i try to elevate in my own work yeah <laughs> that puts you in a very unique position i would imagine um you put yourself in sort of a crossfire <laughs> um <laughs> Kokai Nosakera was on the podcast. His name is Royal Star on TikTok. He introduced me to Resmo Menacam. And uh, I've been reading My Grandmother's Hands, which I recommend to everybody. And talking about the what this racial caste system does to our body in our bodies and how that's an essential part of the work to undo it. So I think that being true. I'm curious for you. Do you have ideas for how you're looking to elevate this conversation and how you want to engage in meaningful ways of getting that apathy sort of stirred out? 
I do have some ideas, to be honest with you. Um, I have a good friend who does work with white-bodied people. Her name is Kasum Kremel, and she like is constantly leading like circles and um, spaces for white-bodied people to get together to think about the harm and not just the harm and stewing in the harm, but how do you heal it? How do you move it? How do you make it something that you... And I have another good friend that I've interviewed before. Her name is Annie Stafford, who talks about she's a white bodied person who plays black music. Mm. And she talks about the ways that white bodied people have to consistently think about whiteness and how to interrupt it in their daily lives. Mm. And um, she plays with a Brazilian, a black Brazilian band generally. And, you know, the way she can pay homage to black folks and credit Black folks. And so there's a lot of things I learned from those two um, about, you know, what it's like to confront whiteness as mm. white people. So I observed them. And I thought about partnering with white-bodied people to create some kind of, like, mechanism. So I, I loosely am thinking of, like, workshops or um, maybe something longer, like a retreat space where we could gather some white body people who actually want to deprogram mm. and like work on what that could look like over a period. But it's an idea. It's an idea. And I literally believe that I wouldn't be the person working to deprogram white folks at all, because I think that's special work for the people I just named, like Kasum and Annie would do wonderful in that space. Um, another friend of mine, Christine, but what I could do is I could certainly be part of a group that offers some information from a Black perspective. Um, mm. I could have other teachers, Black, Brown, Indigenous, trans, uh, queer, especially trans and queer people of color, you know, coming together to share some perspectives. And then, you know, so that's an idea I have mm. is like creating some space where we could have those kind of generative conversations. Yes. Um but it's an idea right now. So we'll see yeah. where it goes. I love it. I mean, ultimately you, uh, <laughs> especially for like former Christians, it's like uh, throw the idea of a retreat out there. It's like, oh, I know what that is. I can see that, you know? Yeah, let's retreat. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that there's a necessity for those spaces that can be healing and give people the room, uh, you know, to express what they need to, to, I, to notice. I love that you said this person that talks about noticing whiteness throughout their day. That's a really beautiful, uh, and difficult, uh, thing to do just to pay attention to all the ways that it shows up. Your approach is so invitational that it's often, um, the conversation, the way that it's had in places that you and I are, you know, becoming engaged with on social media, it does, it's not as much allowed for that there's these spaces that they're not going to be as large, right? Where you're just like, Hey, th we're having an, a generative conversation here about this. That That's not as sexy as like shouting down the racist of the day, um, <laughs> which there's space for and, and a need for. Right. Um, but these conversations that you're inspired by. So when you think about that, do you see it on a local level or are you trying to organize some kind of a more national approach, connecting people from your travels or the things you've learned along the way? Yeah, you know, honestly, it's interesting because 
I am always mindful about like honoring what's already being done mm-hmm. in Like I'm always mindful about like the fact that if I have this idea, there are tons of people with these ideas who probably have operationalized them in some different ways. So I see myself as maybe testing something like this locally where I am. Yeah. Um, seeing like if there's a, I mean, you know, learning, like I'm a student of life, I say, because I'm always learning like what's there, what's, what's been done, what hasn't been done, what can still be done, what could be done in a slightly different way. And so I do think something like this, I would test, you know, in my own small corner of the world and then see if there's a need for it on a bigger scale. I do think I guess what I learned in all my time in the nonprofit industrial complex (laughs) is like this idea of not replicating like things that are already being done, but partnering. So I feel like there was be lots of room for like coalition and people who would like to have their stuff come together with my stuff. And that is definitely uh, something that I think about a lot. I love that. I love that you said the nonprofit industrial complex too, that that's something that's not talked about in in enough circles <laughs> the the need the reliance we have upon those that just keep the system going <laughs> i think we've both been in those spaces for long enough to know. <laughs> well i was just talking with someone yesterday about the issue of people experiencing uh houselessness in the boston area has crept up to like skid row level in this one section of Boston that never used to exist because they shut down a shelter and just how this super liberal state is in this situation. And people, you know, people be like, oh, that's because of blue policies and all that sort of stuff. It has nothing to do with red or blue. We are all, this system just does this, Mm -hmm. right? This is why I am so convinced and am so excited for what you're pursuing and whoever else you've named is pursuing because faith is this third way thing Mm -hmm. that like we get to imagine another world when you talk about these things when you you know you experience church uh, not church sorry um spiritual community the way that you do um do you experience or get glimpses of that other world that we think might be possible for sure. So, you know, I want to just say something about what you said about the houselessness. Yeah. Um, and this is another reason why I think this work is so important, because in Oakland, in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, you know, California, yep. New York, everywhere, there's a this like uptick in houselessness. Yep. And it is one of those reminders for me when I look around at it, at like you said, the way the structures work the way the structures want to keep that actually uh, in place. And someone I met recently said, it's a coercion tactic. It's a way for the rest of us to look and go, oh, we don't want to be in that position. So we're going to keep work. We're going to keep capitalism moving so that we never get. But it is like this thing that is done almost like a threat to the rest of the society. So it's like they don't want to solve for it. And so it is like one of these things, right? So I yes. just want to say that. And Thank then, that. yeah, because I mean, I was like, ooh, when the person said it, I was like, that is a little scary, but I do think that's what's happening. Yes. But I do think that that is the power of faith for me, it is the power of faith for me 
is the knowing that something else is possible. Because when I turn and look at, say, the life of Christ, or uh, if you take another spiritual figure, the Buddha, or, you know, there's always something in that teaching that is not of this world. <laughs> right. That right. is beyond what is here and right in front of you. When you look at African spirituality, indigenous spirituality, there's always something cosmic, metaphysical, that the physical is just one, one piece of it. It is beyond the physical. And so that's where I believe that even racism, colorism, and oppression has a metaphysical piece that if we keep moving our ideas, our prayers, our affirmations, and our actions, because there's no way, and I don't believe in just praying and leaving it. Let's just leave it over there. I believe like we pray and then we actually do some things to move it along. I do think that there is a real, real, um, not only possibility, but high probability that we can actually do something differently. And it can show up in, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, 200 years, right? I don't know the time, <laughs> but I do believe that something can be different. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope this conversation inspired some new thoughts or questions within you. Until next time, peace, my friends.